This is the Practical Teaching Tips Podcast. I am your host, Richard James Rogers, high school science and chemistry teacher and author of the award-winning book, The Quick Guide to Classroom Management. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode on the Practical Teaching Tips podcast. I am your host, as always, Richard James Rogers. And today, in the spirit of providing some real, practical, actionable tips, I shall be uh, referring to um, a blog post stroke article from a veteran teacher, Um, entitled Eight Essential Teaching Tips from Someone Who Has Seen It All. And this is by Suzanne Kapek-Tingley, who's a veteran educator with an MA degree. And this uh, blog post is available at wgu.edu. And I'll put the link in the episode description. So what I'd like to do today is briefly go through the eight points that... um, Uh, that Suzanne raises, and then add my own kind of detail and experience and opinions um, on on the things that she's raised. So here we go. I'm going to read it to you now. When I was a new teacher, I got a lot of practical teaching tips from veteran colleagues. One tip was to seat kids alphabetically so I'd learn their names quickly. Another was to use a laminated hall pass to avoid writing a new one every time a student asked to go to the bathroom. Most, but not all of their tips were useful. I decided not to make kids turn their desks around and face the wall if they misbehaved. I mean, that does sound really antiquated, doesn't it? As a veteran educator myself, it's now my duty to share teaching tips based on what I've learned over time that might be useful to prospective teachers or those just starting their careers. Okay, well, just just before we get into the tips, um, seating kids alphabetically to learn their names. I'm not sure if that's really a good strategy in today's day and age. Uh, I think it's more useful to to sit kids based on um, ability groups that they, they could be working in or, of course, separating kids who shouldn't be sat together. Um, if you're teaching children who are EAL and they don't speak English as a first language, you might want to separate those kids from each other so that they they don't speak their native language all the time and they, they get used to speaking English. So the alphabetical thing, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe in some situations it could work. So her first tip is don't grade everything. And here's what she says. When I was a new teacher, I dragged home a a briefcase stuffed with students' work every night. I collected everything, homework, rough drafts, worksheets, and spent my evenings and weekends trying to grade it all. Then I went to a workshop that explained that grades should indicate progress toward mastery not whether kids had done homework. I continued to grade tests, of course, 
but I learned to use classroom strategies like writing workshops and think pair share so kids could share their work and learn together. Um, I 100% vehemently agree um, with um, uh, with Suzanne on this. Don't grade everything. Don't waste your time writing tons and tons of comments on everyday student work. I also used to do what Suzanne did when I was a very young teacher, take piles of work home, cover it in red pen. Um, all my free time or lots of my free time was taken up. And the net effect of that really was negligible uh, for student progress. What I will say, though, to add to Suzanne's comment about strategies is that live marking is really, really, really good. It's one of my favorite feedback strategies. For those who don't know what it is, it's when you walk around the classroom with a red pen or a colored pen in hand, you mark the student work in real time as they're doing it, or you ask them to come to your desk one at a time, mark it in front of them. And what this allows you to do is first of all, be really time efficient so that you're not marking loads of stuff in your free time, but also it's better for the students because you can have those one-to-one -one conversations. You can give that real-time, um, as I said, real-time feedback, correction, advice, tips on how to do the work. Um, and also, it builds rapport at the same time, I've noticed. It gets you to really know the students really well um, because you're having so many conversations with them. So it's a win-win situation. Peer assessment can be, can be very good as well. Self-assessment can be good. There's a lot of software now that, that give you um, automated assessment, uh, particularly in subjects like English, maths and science, for example. So there's, there's so many more strategies now available to deliver proper, um, efficient feedback. Um, and there certainly is no need to grade everything, definitely, um, but also no need to cover everything in, in colored ink and take everything home to mark. Um, of course, you will have to do that sometimes for, for high-stakes assessments, as she said, but certainly everyday work, live marking, peer assessment, self-assessment, automated assessment is the way forward. Number two, her second tip is to let students know what's going on. I used to just hand out the books and start teaching, but it's a lot easier to get where you want to go if everyone's on board. Students should know what they're going to learn, why they're learning it, and how it'll be evaluated. That's interesting. So what they're going to learn, why they're learning it, and how it will be evaluated. I also learned to use a rubric so that kids know right from the beginning how their work will be evaluated and therefore what they should strive for. I think that's a great idea. Um, and again, her sentiments um, correlate with mine. Um, I phrase this um, in my blog and in my books as curriculum clarity making the road ahead really clear for students. So this is what we're teaching. This is what we're learning. This is the curriculum map. And I think all too often schools don't share curriculum maps enough with children. And I think it is important that students know the road ahead. They know 
where they're supposed to be going, what the next topic is going to be, when the assessments are going to happen, how they'll be assessed, really making that road ahead very clear for students. But the question is, how do you do that? Now, I think one of the great ways that that can be done today is through the VLEs or the online classrooms that we're learning um, or that we're, we're giving to our children to learn from. Um, I, for example, use Google Classroom, but I know that Moodle and Firefly and Class Dojo and um, other great systems are just as good for this. Um, and you can post the topics and the resources for the topics ahead of time so that students can not only read ahead, but they can see the kind of um, uh, the kind of roadmap for the for the entire course or the entire semester or the entire year, um, and and I think it's not only students who appreciate that, but I think parents really appreciate that as well, especially when they're bringing in tutors and and they want to help their children improve their grades. Number three explain procedures and expectations. It's a mistake to assume the students in your class know how to work in a group or how to behave on a field trip. However, most kids will cooperate if they know what they're supposed to do. Remember, as an educator, you have to teach not only the what, but the how. I really like that concept, actually, by, by Suzanne there. You have to teach not only the what, but the how. Yeah, and I think if you keep that in mind, um, with everything you do as a teacher, as, as a rule of thumb, teach the what not and the how. Um, teach the what and the how. I nearly said not the how then. Um, but if you do that, you're going to be giving your students complete information. Um, and I think she makes a good point, um, and not just things like working in a group, but also the routine contextual content of your course as well. So, for example, when I'm, when I'm teaching chemistry, there's a certain way that I want the students to do calculations. Um, when I'm teaching mathematics, there's a certain way I want students to label diagrams of circles, for example. Um, and also linked to this is how you sanction and reward students and that should be as consistent and as fair as possible if you're rewarding one particular student more than you're rewarding perhaps others who are showing the same standard of work and putting in the same amount of effort or, or are about equal in terms of what they are uh, producing then something's going wrong there. Um, or if you're, if you're sanctioning one student but not sanctioning another for the same misbehavior, then, then that's definitely going to be noticed by your students. So fairness and consistency with rewards and sanctions, and that links into explaining procedures, explaining expectations. And of course, it works best if you do that before the event happens. Um, I just recently um, did an experiment with my year 11 students um, all about burning um, liquid fuels um, and there were quite a few safety precautions they needed to know. So it was really important that I explained all of that before they started setting things on fire, as you can imagine. So pretty important one from Suzanne there. Number four, 
How you treat students matters. What you say to them or how you treat them can make or break their day. When I was a new teacher, I didn't fully understand how an off-handed comment or criticism could affect a child. Once my own kids started school and came home with stories about what their teachers said or did, I realised the impact we can have on students. After that, I kept a poster in my room that said, they won't always remember what you taught them, but they'll always remember how you treated them. Wow, that's a nice phrase, isn't it? I'll repeat that. They won't always remember what you taught them, but they'll always remember how you treated them. Wow. Yeah, that is really important, actually. And it can be difficult to follow this when you yourself as the teacher are tired or you're really busy or you're stressed out or you're just not happy. Uh, Maybe a student has underperformed and they've carried out some really silly mistakes in a test or something and you're really annoyed at that. You've got to control your emotions and you've got to control your delivery of feedback in that situation. Um, And we always have to maintain a professional attitude. doesn't necessarily have to be a cheerful attitude all the time. There's a lot of teachers who are excellent at their job and they're, they're not always the most cheery, um, uh, the most gregarious people, but they always have a professional um, composure, I guess is the word. So it's very important that we think carefully about how the words we say and how we say those words are going to affect our students. Um, Number five, you don't know every kid's home life. A friend of mine teaches at a high school where 44 different languages are spoken. And she told me that she overheard a student say, I'm really tired. Last night I had to sleep next to someone who snored. Kids might be dealing with issues we know nothing about. So don't assume video games are to blame when homework isn't done. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, I recently wrote a blog post about helping students um, living in poverty as well. I made a podcast episode about it, um, if you look back as well. Um, there's just so much going on in children's, in children's homes these days, especially um, in these post-pandemic years uh, that we're now living in. Um, Global poverty has increased by 15%, roughly, um, according to Save the Children. Um, And there's so many issues now happening um, in the the family um, that a lot of teachers are just not aware of. And this is happening across sectors. Um, It's even happening in the public schools, in the fee-paying schools, for families who you may think are really rich sending their children to Um, fee-paying schools Um, but many of those families as as I mentioned earlier um, in in my last uh, podcast episode are really struggling Um, and and they're paying the tuition fees for their children but sacrificing so much to do that in many cases so so important that we have sympathy we have empathy we have understanding uh, but at the same time we also maintain our expectations um but be sympathetic. If a kid doesn't bring a pen, have some pens available. If it's a consistent thing, 
look into why that's happening. Try not to be confrontational about it. Uh, if a kid is tired, talk to the child about it. Try and find out what's going on. If it's a consistent thing, look into it. See what action can be taken. Number six, keep your sense of humor. I totally agree with this one. I was so serious about being a good teacher, I didn't see the role humor could play in my classroom. After a few years, though, when I had more skills and more confidence, I was able to let my guard down and actually be funny or silly. Even better, my students began to understand that they could make jokes now and then and we could all laugh together. I actually completely agree with this. Um, I use humour a lot in my lessons, as as my students will tell you. Um, But that humour comes from my own personality, first of all, because I am quite a, I guess, quite a charismatic guy I suppose when I'm when I'm with people uh, outside of teaching anyway um, I can kind of let my hair down and be myself Um, but at the same time the humor comes from my knowledge of the subject and my love for the subject as well and when you really love your subject you really know your subject that puts you in a very happy frame of mind as a teacher and it can allow you to to bring in um, humor into the lesson. So a little example I'll give you. Um, I was teaching students recently about acids and alkalis. And I made a little joke and I said, um, another teacher in the staff room said, I really like your tie, Mr. Rogers. And I said, thank you. I alka-like your tie. The teacher walked away and um, didn't speak to me for two days. This is a life of a chemistry teacher, hashtag chemistry life. You know, that's a bit silly. That's, that's, my, that's my own humor. Um, but believe it or not, when humor like that is linked to the terminology or the vocabulary or the concepts in the lesson, um, it can actually boost um, student retrieval and memory of the concepts and, and there's quite a bit of research that has, has um, shown that to be the case so um, think about how you could be humorous in your lessons you don't have to be constantly cracking jokes but now and again bring in a little bit of humor bring in a bit of um, uh, a bit of a bit of fun and activity and be a little bit silly from time to time Number seven, socializing with colleagues is good for you. Whether it's the faculty holiday party, relay for life, or stopping at the local pub for a drink on Friday, sharing the joys and frustrations of teaching and supporting one another is essential to your well-being. Forming close bonds with a colleague can even improve your levels of job satisfaction, so don't isolate yourself. I'm on the fence about this one, everybody. I'm not sure how um, true that is today. Um, I personally think you have to be very, very careful about getting too close to your colleagues. That I honestly believe there needs to be professional distance because it's, it's too easy to get drunk with your colleagues and say something stupid or do something stupid and then all of a sudden you're in a situation where someone's complaining about you um, or you've caused some kind of friction or tension. 
you need to be careful about what you reveal to your colleagues as well. Yes, use your colleagues for help and advice. And I don't mean use in the sense of um, a greedy way. I mean, draw upon your colleagues' expertise, of course. You're surrounded by experts who can really help you. Um, and, and that kind of camaraderie and um, collegiate nature should be in place at every school. But I think this idea of getting really friendly with your colleagues and going out for regular drinks and all of that stuff, um, I think that's potentially quite dangerous, actually. Um, I, I know of several cases very recently where, where teachers have, um, have really offended someone else at a staff gathering or at a party. Um, people these days, um, especially young adults, tend to be very touchy-feely over certain words and concepts um, in large part because of um, this kind of woke culture that's come into place. So anything that's to do with politics, religion, LGBTQIA+, race, all this stuff, any topics like that that come up, um, and you know, when you start giving your opinion on those things, you'll probably find very quickly that someone will, will really disagree with you, and, and then you could have a situation on your hands. So I think be friendly with your colleagues, but you don't necessarily have to be friends with them, um, I think is the, is the key takeaway there. Number eight, your connection to your students might surprise you. I've known teachers who loved their subject and loved teaching, but didn't necessarily love kids. Yeah, I, I've come across that a few times. They didn't dislike kids, they just kept their professional distance. I was like that at the very beginning of my career, but as I became more skilled and comfortable in the classroom, I began to really enjoy connecting with my students as people, and teaching became a lot more fun. At the end of the year, I always ask my students to write a letter to their core teachers, telling us what they liked, what they didn't like, and how we could improve. The letters are honest, funny, and often heartfelt. One student wrote, I loved all my classes, math best of all, and I knew you guys cared about us. I didn't even teach math, but I kept that letter. Um, as I look back, I realize that my focus as an educator was always on the best ways to interact with kids. Maybe that's the most important tip. Make sure your students know that you care about them and the rest will fall into place. Um, to a certain extent, I, I agree with that. Um, you do have to have a sincere, genuine interest in the development, attainment and progress of your students. And that does involve actually caring about them, yes. Um, I also am a big believer in gathering professional intelligence. Now, what is professional intelligence? That is when you get to know your students through conversations. You keep a note of any non-confidential things that they say. So things like their hobbies, their interests, their birthdays, um, anything in their, in their life that is potentially something you could capitalize on within a lesson. Um, so, for example, there was one year where I had 10 students in a class who all loved collecting Pokemon cards. It was 
it was uh, quite a bizarre kind of skew in the in the demographic that year. So I utilized that in an activity in one of my lessons. Uh, I had the students doing a Pokemon style activity in chemistry where they where the Pokemon were like elements, you know, and they did re chemical reactions and things. And that helped them to to learn the concepts and not just those kids, but but the kids who who weren't that into Pokemon either. Um, and you do build rapport and you do build connections that way. However, again, I've got to say, don't get too friendly with your students. Um, that can land you in massive, massive, massive trouble. Um, I know I'm probably teaching to the converted here, but you should never be adding students on social media. Um, if you're going to meet with students one-to-one, -one, where possible, have a third person present in the room, even if it's another student. Um, and I think professional distance does matter. Um, I think whilst you can be silly, funny, friendly, and upbeat when you're teaching your students and helping your students, there still needs to be that um, knowledge that you are the teacher and they are the student. And for that reason, we have a professional relationship. And my role as a teacher involves me imparting knowledge and helping you. Your role as a student is to comply and try and do your best. Um, and and that's where the professional relationship ends, really. Um, and, and I think as teachers, we've we've sometimes lost track of that. And I think it's important to keep that in mind, that uh, we are their advisors, we are their helpers. And of course, we mustn't remember that we are their role models. And again, I think this concept of role models has, has really been lost over over the past decade especially um, and it seems it seems almost like a taboo topic these days to describe teachers as role models but that's really what we should be the way we speak even the way we dress the way that we professionally teach our students the way we talk with them the way that we encourage them everything we do is being watched and observed and the subliminal cues that we give off really matter. So, so we have to bear that in mind, the, the responsibility we have to these children to guide and inspire them. So I really hope that was helpful. Um, Suzanne, if you're listening, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the article. Um, really good advice. Lots of lots of great tips there. I don't 100% agree with everything you've said, but you have provided, I think, a lot of juice for today's podcast episode, which which I hope that everyone listening has has really enjoyed. So thank you, everybody. Until next time. Bye bye for now. <laughs>